Father, good morning. Uh, it's us again. Uh, but better than that, it's you again. You've been here since we were here last time. And you've been everywhere else we went to, and that's just really great. And this morning you've chosen again to write some things down that we can learn from, that we can be encouraged by, that we can be disciplined by, and the end result that later today we'd look a little bit more like you. So help us to do that today as we look at what you wrote. In your name, amen. Uh, last week, since uh, somebody I know talked overtime, uh, we didn't quite finish Joshua. So I'm going to touch base a little bit with the book of Joshua, and then we'll, we'll get into Judges. Um, as you well remember, uh, and that's the story of life, uh, it was always disobedience on the part of the Israelites. And we all know about that too well. Uh, they were called to be a separate and a holy people. And they were neither separate or holy. They joined the lookalike crowd. They refused to completely kill off the Canaanites, uh, but instead they intermarried with them. In Deuteronomy 7, it's, God was very clear about that and told Moses, he said, when you go in, destroy everybody, the men, the women, the kids, so they went in, they destroyed the camels, and they destroyed the sheep, and they destroyed the men, and they destroyed kids. But they took some of the women home with them. And those women went in their tents, and they took off those little Buddhas off their shelves and put them in their skirt, and they intermarried with the Israelites. And then when they got in their tents, they set them up on the bookcase. And guess what happened? It started to look like something other than they were intending to be. God was very emphatic on protecting his people. Two of the ways in Joshua that he gave was uh, he, uh, he signed six cities of refuge and then those 48 uh, uh, Levitical towns. Uh, if someone accidentally killed someone, uh, they could run to the nearest city of refuge. And they would have a trial, and, and then they could uh, be safe for that period of time. He also uh, set up 48 uh, towns that were assigned to the Levites. So they had a place of worship. Um, remember, it was, 100, it was 50 miles wide and 150 miles long about. And so he placed them strategically, those towns, so nobody had to drive more than 10 miles to church. Uh, so that was handy for them. And then in concluding in Joshua, chapter 24, he assembled all the people together at Shechem, which was about 10 miles north of Shiloh. And you remember that's where Abraham had uh, first received the promise that God would give the seed uh, to the land of Canaan. Since the Mosaic covenant was not an everlasting covenant, it had to be renewed in every generation. And that was their purpose here at Shechem. If we look at Joshua 24, the uh, several verses in there, we hear God say 18 times, I, I took your father Abraham, I sent Moses, I afflicted the Egyptians, I brought, I gave you a land. 
Then Joshua ends with a farewell warning. And it's a caution to serve the Lord. He uh, says in chapter 24, verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. But he knew their hearts and he knew their intentions. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Then Joshua died at the age of 110 and was buried in Timnath-Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim. In verse 31, it says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him. And they lived happily ever after. Uh, Turn the page. Now we're in Joshua. As you chuckled a little bit, you know that's not the case. They did not live happily ever after. God's plan for them was that they could defeat the Canaanites as a nation, as a whole nation, they would go in and defeat that land. And then he would take 12 individual tribes and divide it up so they had their own parcel. And that's what God did. Joshua 11 says, 23, then the land had rest from war. Sounds good. Chapter 13 starts out, when Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, you're very old and there's still very large areas of land to be taken over. As he had said, his whole plan was for them to conquer it as a whole nation, but then to uh, finish destroying each the occupants of their own respective area of land that they get. But they sang the song, I'll do it my way. And you know the results. Um, I have a wonderful plan for my life. Uh, It didn't work so well. That's the story of life, I guess. Um, As we've learned uh, earlier, the book of Joshua began in about 1406 and covered a span of 25 years, ending in about 1380, approximately when Joshua died. Moses had led the Israelites for 40 years and spent much of that time preparing the next leader, Joshua. But this was different. There was no successor appointed to replace Joshua. Now that God's chosen people were established as his people, they had his law, and they now lived in his land, God himself was to be their ruler, a theocracy. They would all live under God's law, with the priests being used to continue to teach that law. But once again, man did his own thing, which was different than what God had in mind. So God, because of his faithfulness, he brought in 12 judges, uh, different judges, over that 325-year period, which began with the death of Joshua and ended when Saul became Israel's first king which was about in 1043 B.C. 
The judge's basic responsibility were to deliver Israel from foreign oppressors and attempt to squelch sin. They're not like kings. They had a lot less power. They couldn't uh, exact taxes. They couldn't form a standing um, military. And, but they did have smaller territories that they were responsible for. The book of Judges was written sometime after Saul had been anointed by Samuel, probably about 1040. Judges 17, verse 6, and several other verses reads, In those days Israel had no king which seems to indicate and refer back to a time when they did have a king, Saul being their first. Being an active judge and a prophet during that time period would also give credibility to Samuel, being the author of Judges. God's righteous judgment demands that he punish sin. And using foreign nations to punish the tribes of Israel as a means of drawing them to himself was certainly within his realm. As you remember way back when, God had done that with Pharaoh. He used Pharaoh to override the Israelites to teach them something. In chapter 3, uh, we, we read, These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. And who found out better? and the Israelites about using God using the Assyrians and the Babylonians a few years down the road. Just a little question. Is God capable of doing that in America today? I won't answer that here. The purpose of this period and the book of Judges was to show both God's judgment as well as his love. His whole emphasis in Exodus 25 to 40 that he still wanted to dwell with his people. He showed up on the mountain, he came down in smoke, he came down in the pillar, and he certainly tabernacled with him. God was dead serious about being with and providing for his chosen people. But remember, grace is free, but not cheap. For Christ Easter came, but not before Good Friday. For us, God's earlier people, glorification didn't come before sanctification, and that didn't come before redemption, and that didn't become, come before confession. Romans 3, 5 establishes a process for living, uh, a pattern. And suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Israelites really needed to see how that cycle occurred in the life of a believer, since they had completely ignored the godly process. They needed to learn very painfully through seven cycles of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. In everyday terms, one, they blew it. Two, they got a spanking. Three, they said they were sorry. Four, they were forgiven. And four, it was forgotten. Oh, it was only that simple. That's why they went through that same process, exact process, 
seven times. I'm just so grateful that I, I learned it the first time. That gives a real break. So how'd that all happen? In chapter 2 of Joshua, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who lived after him. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Somewhere between grandpa and dad and me and my kids and my grandkids and now my great-grandkids, we missed something. Someone in that whole generation had been gathered to the fathers, a new generation, who neither knew the Lord nor the things he had done. Oh, we got to work on that. If we go back to Exodus 1, we read where Jacob and his sons all moved to Egypt and eventually all died. Verse 8 says, Then a new Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, came to power. We see evidence of a common mistake way back relating to the natural passing of time with people forgetting, not maintaining their godly relationships, forming new bad habits that end up being a lack of personal discipline and love for the Lord. And that affects generations and generations of families, not just the Israelites. For them, there was no central government but rather 12 independent, separate tribes, each of whom had just inherited their own individual parcel of land. And to complicate matters, that land was not totally conquered. In Deuteronomy 7, under Moses, the Israelites were given three commands when they entered the land. One, destroy all the inhabitants. Two, avoid intermarriage with pagan neighboring countries. And three, shun all false gods. Go to chapter 3 and listen to the verbs there. In terms of destroying all the people, we read, they chased off, they set Jerusalem on fire, they advanced, they failed to dislodge, they did not drive out, they took possessions, they did not drive, they forced labor, they confined them to the hill country, they put the city to the sword, but spared the families. Not one of those verbs was perfect obedience with what God had in mind. And in terms of no intermarriage, the verbs say, and they took and gave daughters. And the third one, do not worship foreign gods. The verb says, they did not break down the altars. They did evil and served Baals. They followed and worshiped other gods, and they served other gods. You might find it a bit interesting and surprising who those foreigners were. They were all distant relatives. Sometimes we refer to, oh, that's my second cousin, uh, twice removed, or that's my daughter-in-law by love, or in some cases we say, uh, uh, that's one of Uncle Herman's boys. You know how they were. Uh, that's how we approach it. The Israelites also had those relationships. That had gone sour. The Midianites were descendants of Midian, the son of Abraham and Keturah. The Amorites were the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his youngest daughter, with the Moabites being a result of that same sinful relationship with his oldest daughter. And there was the Edomites, descendants of Esau, 
the non-favorite son of Isaac. That gives us a perspective on who the Israelites were up against as they attempted to settle in the land. Most Israelites didn't really start out determined to be idolaters. They just added the idols to the worship of God and soon found themselves beginning bit after bit after bit to do what came naturally, sinning. Even after all that, God in his mercy provided 12 different judges to help them conquer their territories and to provide some times of peace during that 325 years. When I was studying this part, I, I seriously wondered, what do I do with all this junk? I don't mean junk in terms of God's word. I mean, what was happening? Seems like they just kept doing the same old thing. Same sins. They got caught. They got punished. They uh, cried. They said they were sorry. They called Wolf and God forgave them. And, and they started all over again. And one time I came out of my office and I came to Connie in the living room and I says, Honey, I, I'm tired of this. Uh, there's nobody going to be interested in hearing this. So why should I bother studying it? It's terrible. And then it kind of dawned on me. It wasn't my name on the line. It wasn't my glory. I was being walked on and ignored. It wasn't my son who died for them. That put a whole new perspective on it for me. So please... Uh, bear with me as we read and take a close look at sin, repeated sin in the lives of some of our earlier relatives. Uh, there are several chapters of it, so if it gets a little boring, I thought, well, maybe we can just start in the back row and you can come up front one at a time and share some of your own, just to make it interesting. Uh, Okay, so we'll, we'll stick with the Israelites. Here's the pattern that we find beginning in Judges 3. Uh, first there was a sin, then there was a foreign nation that was her nemesis, then the judge that God used in the number of years that they had peace before it started all over again. Chapter 3, verse 7, there's the Mesopotamians. They had eight years of oppression, and God called Othniel, the first judge, to come in. Verse 7, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hand of the Mesopotamians to whom they were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, they re he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz. Othniel, incidentally, was Caleb's younger brother. That puts him in pretty good standing in my book, I would think. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Mesopotamia into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered them. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Next comes the Moabites with Ehud. Once again... The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, the king of Moab, 
power over Israel. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. I won't read the details of the stabbing of a very fat king with an 18-inch dagger. It's not good for church. It continues, that that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites and they became subject to Israel. And the land had peace for 80 years. Continuing verse 31, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. He too saved Israel. Chapter 4, after Ehud died, the Israelites once that's getting a little old, ain't it? Once again, the evil, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold him into the hands of the Canaanites, who had 900 iron chariots, and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help, and then Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Uh, once again, I'm going to choose to uh, not read about uh, how... Uh, King Sisera had a stake drove through his temple. Not his temple as in church. Temple as in head. And it was gruesome. On that day, God subdued the Canaanite king before the Israelites. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead... When the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. And in chapter 6, I got Gideon. You're probably more familiar with Gideon than any of them. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. The Midianites so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help, and God sent them a prophet. And the Lord appeared to Gideon, saying, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? That's a fair question. I'm sure many of us have asked that same type thing. And Gideon really did ask God for a sign. In fact, two signs. Actually, more than that. To see him how he could save Israel. Gideon really did want to know for sure. Then he would know. Not out of necessity, but purely out of mercy, God gave him answers. Still, Gideon doubted. He had asked about if the fleece is wet in the morning, the ground is dry, then I'll know. And then he comes back to God and says, well, that's nice, but flip that again. If the fleece is wet and the ground is... And God, uh, he did it. Even prior to those couple of signs, when God originally asked Gideon to go destroy the Midianites, he assured him in verse six, in chapter 6, I will be with you. That idea of asking God repeatedly is not a new issue. In Genesis 18, if we go back, uh, we find Abraham coming back to God several times. 
on behalf of his three visitors regarding the saving of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, he begged God six different times for more leniency. Abraham started by asking God to save him if there was 50 righteous people. And he thought about it a little bit and said, well, what would you deal with 45? Uh, How about 40? How about 30? 20? One last time. 10? But there was only eight. That's embarrassing. And now we here find Gideon again putting God to the test. And we read that night God did so. We find the same judge planning on starting the battle with the Midianites with 32,000 men. God reduced it to 22,000 and to 10,000 and to 300. Once again, they blew their trumpets and shouted. Seems to be an old battle trick. As so often happens after moments of victory, the so-called winners come to some faulty conclusions. In chapter 8, we read, The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So far, so good. But then Gideon continues. I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. So they did. Does that have a Mount Sinai ring to you? Verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. Do we ever learn? Nevertheless, this merciful God gave the Israelites 40 years of peace. And the beat goes on. Next time, in, next in line was Tola and Jair. All scripture says about them is that together they judged Israel 45 years and, and one had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. Actually, donkeys were a sign of prominence at that time. With little fanfare, we come to the next four judges of Israel, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And I couldn't have named one of them. Again, their prominence seemed to come in the fact that they had 30 sons and 30 daughters, or they had 30 sons, 40 sons and 30 grandsons, each who had their own donkey. During their time, Israel suffered 31 years under the bondage of the Ammonites, and only six years of peace. And now we come to the hero of our story. Uh, Or do we? It seems like Samson gets the most press in the Old Testament. At least if you're a 10-year-old boy and you want to be the toughest kid in class. Actually, we now come to a judge who we might say has real potential. After suffering at the hands of the Philistines for 40 years, the Israelites were certainly looking for someone who can bail them out once and for all. And many of us are still looking. 
chapter three, 13, verse 2, it says, A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife. Her name wasn't even mentioned. Who was sterile and remained childless. Hmm. Sterile. Barren. God made a promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and says here, Kids will be as many as the stars of the sky and the sands of... And yet the first three ladies, or the three first ladies, were all barren. And then comes Elkanah and Hannah and Zechariah and Elizabeth. God can work out of a hole anytime he wants, under any circumstances. And we see that time and time again. Maybe looking at their kids, we see some hope. Verse 3 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You're going to conceive and have a son. You are to drink no wine. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin, notice that word, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg of you, teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. That's a good time probably to stop reading about Samson. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. They replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Bad question. Bad parenting. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Then they went down and he went down and talked to the woman, and he liked her. For the rest of Samson's life, we read of inconsistencies. One day, in chapter 16, we see one day Samson went to gaze, where he saw a prostitute. Gazing can be dangerous. Later on, King David tried that. Verse 4, sometime later he fell in love with the woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. That night laying in bed, not being able to sleep, two parents had to say, honey, where did we go wrong? And I don't know if they ever answered that question. Many of us know the rest of the story and the outcome with Delilah. <clears throat> Delilah won, temporarily. Chapter 16, verse 16. She prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything, and his strength left him. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's got to be the saddest verse in the Bible. He did not know that the Lord had left him. 
we got to take very, very short accounts spiritually. Verse 21, after the Flissons finally captured Samson, they gouged out his eyes. Ironically, or maybe not so, Samson said earlier, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. I want her. Is it possible that we see too much? Then the Philistines took him to Gaza to grind grain in the prison. As his hair grew back, so did his strength. His last moments involved his entertaining the Philistines and pulling down two pillars on the temple of Dagon. Verse 30, thus he killed more, many more, when he died than while he lived. He led Israel 20 years. Chapters 3 to 16, we just heard about 12 judges. Their sole purpose to be used to save tribe, 12 tribes. How'd they do? I'm sure we all cringe a bit that we heard about names and behavior, but God will ultimately be a judge, of course. Part of that answer is in Hebrews 11, where we find four of those judges listed there. Uh, perhaps I need to not be quite so critical so soon. Chapter 17 at 21 don't improve much. The moral failures continued. Micah had a shrine, installed one of his sons to be the priest. Then a young Levite, who is not of the family of Aaron, joined in to the, for the priestly duty. And you know how God had established who could be his priest. Again, simply a result of 18.1. In those days, Israel had no king. We find the tribe of Dan not accepting their allotment and location, so they moved north, settled there, and set up for themselves idols. Verse 31, they continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Judges 19, just like Genesis 19, is another unreadable section. Just like we see in the news, warnings every night on the news, caution, this video may be harmful to you. That's what was happening there. It's a story of a Levite who took a concubine, had a bad relationship, and traveled in Gibeah to Benjamin. Again, we're back to Sodom and Gomorrah, another homosexual attack, ending in bloodshed and distribution of body parts. I say that silently to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The end result was nearly a complete extinction of one of the tribes, Benjamin. Incidentally, uh, Saul and Esther and Paul were all from the tribe of Benjamin. As we close with the book of Judges, it certainly causes us to reflect on three separate periods of the history of mankind. We look at Noah's time. It says, and God, it repented God that he had made man. Now in the judges' time, we've heard so many times, and everyone that was right in his own eyes. Now in 2023, can man confront God any more brazenly than we're doing today? 
About 500 years later, the same chosen people of God took another trip to Babylon and back. Once there was captives, someone wrote in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How do you sing the song of Zion in a foreign land? After 70 years of relearning what God had said and done, they sang a different song as a nation as they returned from captivity in Psalm 106. We have sinned even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses. Yet he saved them for his namesake. He saved them. Then they believed his promises. But soon they forgot what he had done. So he gave them what they asked for. But he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For he remembered his covenant. After all these expensive lessons by our earlier relatives, the Israelites, what's our personal individual response is going to be? Next week we get to hear from Kerry as he talks about what God did with us. Moabite woman. Maybe it'll be a bit of a reprieve. So, you are free to take a few minutes and then we get to come back and worship this Holy One of Israel. <clears throat>